Welcome to the Hallowed Halls. I'm Danielle, the Armchair Scholar, and this is my guide to the strange and unusual things that capture the imagination, that make your skin crawl, and that haunt you long after you've walked out of the movie or put down the book. Let's take a journey through film, television, books, and the works of actual scholars to get a better look at the tropes, legends, lore, and mythologies that make up these weird worlds and their inhabitants. Thank you for joining me again, and I welcome you back to the third installment of our look at Dracula. As we've seen from the previous episodes on this towering figure of pop culture, there's a lot to unpack with this vampire. If you're just joining me now, I highly suggest that you take a listen to the two previous episodes of the podcast on both the history of vampires and an in-depth look into Stoker's Dracula. They cover a lot of ground in how we got to what we're going to be covering today, and that is how this gothic novel transcended from just a piece of decently received fiction to the cultural atomic bomb that it is now. While it's a winding road and a bit of a long story, I'm going to endeavor to be your guide to Dracula's road from the novel to Universal. Bram Stoker's book has remained in print since Dracula's publication in 1897, and to many, this story is a beloved classic. That said, even in Stoker's lifetime, the tale was starting to take on a life of its own, and that all started with where this story would go in the world. What's more, Stoker was aware that it would travel, likely without his permission, but he would be amazed today to see where his story ended up. That said, let's go back to the beginning, to the very first adaptation of Dracula, as done by Brahm himself. At the time of Dracula's publication, Stoker really only thought about the playwrights because it had been the major form of entertainment for the time. It was true that film had been invented by this point, but the medium was still so new that few people were attending them, and the first full-length feature film wouldn't be produced until 1906. Because of this, his emphasis would be on making sure that he had the staging rights to his work before anyone else got them. In an effort to secure these theatrical rights to the story, Stoker staged an ungodly long reading of the book at the theatre that he worked at, the Lyceum. There is an often repeated story that is passed into urban legend status, that upon seeing the reading for Dracula, Henry Irving, the actor to whom Brahms entire career, and most of his free time revolved around, had announced his verdict on it in a single word, dreadful. While there are plenty of testimonials to support Irving's callous and sometimes outright cruel treatment of those under his employ, to be fair to the actor, there is some dispute that he ever said this at all. Still, given that this was just a reading, no acting, and no audience required, though it was rude, the remark may not have been entirely off-base. You see, Stoker had to adapt his own book into something that could be performed, even just as a reading. It wasn't enough to simply lift the dialogue, because as anyone who's read it before knows, this entire narrative is told through letters, journal entries, and newspaper clippings. What's more, any dialogue in the book is told secondhand from remembered snippets of conversations. 
The end result was a sprawling mess of pages created from the galley proofs, and Stoker's own notes, into a single script that actors had to share, and the reading went on for four hours. Biographer and Dracula scholar David J. Skull explained in his book Something in the Blood, mentioned previously, that though this didn't do that much, if anything, to curb the theft of the author's work, it was a common practice among artists like Charles Dickens and Mark Twain. And protection for their works was clearly necessary, as imitations and inspirations were commonplace. In fact, Dracula was only about two years old when its first branching narrative appeared. If, like me, everyone around you associates your name with anything dark and spooky, you might have been sent the widely shared image over social media that laments about the lost version of Dracula from Iceland. There is more than one lost version out there, and we're going to be covering the two that I've been able to get a hold of, both listed in the show notes. This has been a new development in the world of Dracula scholarship, and something that would be good to keep an eye on if there are any historians out there who have an interest in this book. We're going to get to the splinters of even Brahms' version of the story soon enough, but I think it's important that we cover these so-called lost versions as well. For one, it is unfair to dismiss them because they are, indeed, the Dracula story as we understand it, but both versions are very different from each other and Stoker's novel. I'm going to be upfront that I am not approaching Stoker's novel as a definitive text. This may seem a bit controversial to some, but the reason I'm doing this is so that we can, for the sake of this discussion, open up to having more than one source for our story, and we can also divorce from the Western European point of view. None of this is to say that Stoker's text isn't important, as it's where the story originated. That said, of the two versions we're going to look at, one is allegedly based on Stoker's notes for Dracula, and includes characters that were cut out of early drafts of the English version of the novel and the others from the point of view of a Turkish writer for whom the name Dracula comes with a lot of loaded history attached to it. It is easy to fall back on the idea that Stoker created it and therefore his is the only version, but this doesn't take into account that for people in Sweden and Iceland, the version that we know as Powers of Darkness, or Makmirkrana, is their definitive text. And the same goes for Dracula in Istanbul for readers in Turkey. As we're going to see, it's hard to say with certainty who can lay claim to the name Dracula at this point, but what it means to different people can vary widely and will change drastically as we trace his run through all of the coming adaptations. So with all this in mind, let's retrace Dracula's road to Universal, starting with the Icelandic translation, Powers of Darkness. Now, before we can get to Iceland, apparently we have a bit of a roundabout road to travel concerning what Stoker wrote and how it got scattered over the world. Most sources that you will find about Bram Stoker will be quick to note that the author wrote very little about himself, and though he made notes throughout the process of writing Dracula, they aren't always helpful in reconstructing how he got from the idea of a living corpse man to the most infamous count of all time. Furthermore, it becomes nearly impossible to retrace his steps when most of the steps are missing and have only been found in pieces, with those bits being discovered in various places that either no one was looking or they weren't aware were there. 
And that's only the stuff that's been found, or that we can trace properly. You see, one major stick in the spokes of the historian wheel when it comes to Stoker's notes is that on April 12th of 1912, he passed away, leaving Florence with quite a bit of financial instability to contend with. At this point, I feel that we should take a short moment to talk about Florence Stoker. Now, considering that most people who know her name only know it in association with not Dracula, but Nosferatu, which we'll be getting to later in this episode. She famously pursued the copyright infringement suit against Prana Films until the company went bankrupt and all known copies of the film were destroyed. Obviously, there was a hidden version of it out there that escaped the ruling, and thanks to that tiny oversight, we still have the film today. That said, despite the fact that she was ultimately unsuccessful in ridding the world of Nosferatu, Florence doesn't really always get portrayed in a terribly flattering light. This is no doubt due to how relentlessly she fought with Prana, but isn't aided by the implication that she didn't have the greatest relationship with her only son, either. We bring this into the conversation now because in the aftermath of Brahms' death, Florence Stoker sent much of his library and personal papers to be auctioned off, which is partially how so many of these precious notes about the novel have gotten scattered. On one hand, this might seem to play a bit into the kind of reputation that Florence already had in regards to Nosferatu, though it's worth it to try to present a more balanced picture. It's impossible to say what she felt for Brahm without any kind of documentation, nor how she felt about selling off these pieces of his work. But context does matter in this situation. Before his death, Stoker had been feeling the pinch of financial instability for quite a while, and it had gotten to be a bit much for him to carry. When he died, Dracula had still been one of his best-selling novels, but that was almost five years prior. Keeping money coming in had already been a struggle for him when he was alive, but with him gone, Florence would have to keep it up on her own, and that would prove to be difficult for anyone when people felt so brazenly entitled to Stoker's work. Does this mean that she wept over the loss of his personal notes to keep the household going? We don't know. For all that we do know, she may still have been very much about getting the money over worrying about sentimental keepsakes, but that's entirely up to speculation. And with that in mind, we're not going to harp on Florence too much as we move onwards to the Great Note Hunt. In a 2020 interview with the online vampire channel Toothpickings, which I highly recommend and, as always, is in the show notes, photographer and researcher Hans de Roos spoke at length about the struggles that he had in tracing some of the mysteries behind how Dracula, the novel, was created and where Stoker got his information from. One of the things that he spoke about was how within a short frame of time of the novel being published, it had already started its journey into serializations, starting with a Hungarian version. We should establish here that this only meant that they were printing Stoker's work in newspapers in different countries, and it was attributed only to Stoker. That said, this is also where our mystery begins. In 1899, Dracula appeared as a Swedish serialization, and from this version was adapted another version that appeared in an Icelandic newspaper in 1900. Unlike the normal serializations, however, these ones differed from Stoker's version, and the Icelandic Makt Mirkuna 
featured whole new characters, different scenes that never appeared in the original, a death cult, and a completely different ending. Now, it should be said that anyone who's ever read translated works knows that reading something that began in a different language is always going to be a bit of a challenge for the person adapting it. For the unfamiliar, the phrase lost in translation is more than just a cute way to describe a miscommunication. Languages and cultures seldom, if ever, line up one-to-one -one in everything, regardless of how similar they are. And when making the choice between translating something word for word, or rephrasing it to capture the spirit of what was said, it can leave a lot open to interpretation on the part of the translator. That said, it would take a lot of stretching on that logic to arrive at the conclusion that this was all just due to translating choices. What's more, if it were just a case of someone wanting to spice the story up or change it to fit a Swedish or Icelandic setting better, it begs the question of how they managed to include characters that Stoker had written about in his notes, but had never appeared in the novel proper. As of time of writing, currently Docker Stoker, the great-grandnephew of Brahm, is of the belief that the translator for Makmirkrana, Valdemar Asmundsen, must have had some access at least to Stoker's notes, made on Dracula, and that it was likely Stoker himself who was behind the changes. Hans de Roos, however, disagrees with this, as he has yet to turn up any meaningful or verified connection between the two men. All of this could be explained away by the lost notes that were sold after his death, but, as you've probably noted, when Makmirkrana was being serialized, Bram Stoker was still very much alive and still writing. We're not about to uncover the mysteries of this lost story here, so let us move on to what makes this an interesting chapter in the Dracula history. For those of you who are wanting to read it for yourself, I won't be covering everything that's different in this story, but it is available as both an audiobook or as an ebook, and you can find those links in the show notes. I do highly recommend giving it a read, especially if Dracula history is something you are excited by. Even if you aren't a budding scholar intent on tracing fiction and history, this story is still very much worth a read, for how different it is. Machtmirkrana, or Powers of Darkness if you prefer the English title, is still very much the Dracula story, complete with a man named Harker making his way to meet an elderly Count and getting trapped in his castle. Said Count then makes his way to England, and that's where things change the most. Even then, there are some significant changes to the story well before. For some of the more superficial ones, Harker's first name was changed to Thomas, and his beloved is Wilma. And there are several other minor changes to iconic phrases that we all know, such as the infamous Children of the Night line. These are minor changes, however, and some can be just attributed to translation differences, but they disappear when contrasted with the bigger ones we see at Dracula's castle. You see, the old Count this time is a lot more of a libertine, with quite an affinity for gold and power. Some of this could be said of Stoker's Count as well, as there is more than one scene that shows that Dracula has been hoarding wealth for ages, and his entire reason for coming to England was one of conquest. That said, his methods in Stoker's novel are far more covert, and, as we discussed last time, open to a lot more damage than we were led to believe from the point of view of our main characters. In Machtmirkrana, it's clear that the Count 
is not only a lot more openly corrupt, but also a lot more overt in his intentions. There's a lot of discussion with Harker where he lets his mask slip enough for you to see the power-hungry side of him, and a lot more hand-waving references to the crushing of the weak and the survival of the strong. Mixed with the fact that this version of the vampire is quite a bit more devious, even going so far as to just casually mention the incest in his family lines, you get a lot more of the discomfort that Harker feels in his presence. There's clearly something very wrong with this man, and the cat and mouse game with the solicitor is far less subtle. What's more, Dracula isn't the only one intent on playing with Harker this time around. We had quite a detailed discussion about the brides and their significance last time, but this is one of those elements that is both absent and not in this version. Instead of three women who attempt to seduce and bite Harker, this time it's only one, but she's impressively more aggressive. She's also more active in her pursuit, and her presence haunts him in ways that the original Harker would have been terrified and repulsed by. We also get to see her quite a bit earlier than we got to see his brides. Whereas originally, Harker had wandered off and fallen asleep in another part of the castle, in this version, a mysterious and beautiful blonde woman appears to him in the library on the first day. She makes it very clear that she likes men, and that she has every intention on getting her fangs into him. That is, until Dracula arrives. Though it should be noted that unlike Stoker's book, this version has no declaration that his houseguest belongs to him. The vampire is certainly aware of her, as he writes her off as a mentally ill cousin, whom he plans to abandon in the castle during his move to England. But there's also an indication that he's very well aware that she has designs on Harker. During one of their evening talks, Dracula tells the young man a story about a past relative, who may or may not be the Count himself, who had a tumultuous affair with a beautiful woman to whom he may have been related. What's curious about this is how when he tells of how this woman was unfaithful to her husband, he details how, presumably he, got revenge on his wife by locking her and her lover up in a tower. He explains how the pair were still fed and they lacked for nothing, but he knew that this woman would use the young man up and drive him mad. The Count tells this story almost like he's telling a joke in bad taste, and the young solicitor is even more appalled by the tale when it turns out that the young lover eventually could not take it any longer and threw himself from the tower. What's more interesting is how in telling this tale, Dracula dismisses that love has its lifespan, and that it was inevitable that he and his assumed bride would tire of each other. It dispenses with this idea that he might be jealous of the attention that this woman is giving Harker, but that doesn't mean he approves of it either. The mystery woman, who is never named, appears only at times when Dracula isn't present, and when the Count does make his arrival, she makes it clear that their encounters are not things that he needs to know about. It shows that she has a lot more of that agency that we talked about last time, and unlike the three brides in Stoker's novel, she is ready and willing to defy Dracula in her wants, which she makes very well known up front. Not only does she seek the young man out, she is also very suggestive with him, kneeling before him and sitting on his lap at one point. She also takes more effort to try to entice and seduce him by kissing his neck and trying to get him to take off the cross. And for his part, 
Parker is in a lot more danger of being unfaithful to his fiance in this version, as he craves her attention and is genuinely torn between trying to keep himself safe and wanting so badly to give in to this woman's seduction attempts. There are a number of other things that we can go into for the differences between the two novels, and they would all be worth our time, but in the interest of getting to everything we want to cover, we're going to go into probably the biggest difference between Stoker's Count and the one in Machtmirkrna. This difference is significant because it hammers home, more overtly, the kind of hostile takeover of English soil that Dracula had been planning. In Stoker's book, the Count works covertly to hide his affairs, working with multiple people to secure multiple sales in England. He does all his work off-screen and out of sight, making him a lot more menacing in some ways. After all, he never shows his hand and, instead, leaves the entirety of his plan to speculation of what he might have been up to. This version of Dracula is nowhere near as secretive and a lot more brazen in his plans. He makes no attempt to hide that he's writing to different people of influence across Europe, even as he makes excuses as to why Harker isn't receiving any mail. When he gets to London, he isn't simply slinking around in the shadows, either. This version of Dracula is hosting dinners and is intent on making sure to talk with politicians and other various important people. This is where his language practice with Harker is of a lot more use, as he is able to successfully integrate into society in this version. And we also get a sense of exactly what kind of horrors he has in store for the hapless English people, and possibly all of Europe. You see, while trapped in the castle, Harker makes his way through the secret passages in an attempt to figure out how to get the hell out of there before it's too late. One night, he follows where he thought he saw the Count go, and finds a secret area where there is a gathering of strange and threatening people. The solicitor soon sees that this is a cult that is sacrificing young girls, and Dracula is at the helm of their evil activities. This scene, strange and chilling as it is alone, gives the rest of the book a context for how threatening his behavior actually was. In the end, it's only his underestimation of Harker, and the work of a different crew of light, including a detective, that puts an end to his plans for domination of the West. It should be noted that this version of the story was never fully finished. As other sources have noted, the action changes from the epistolary format to an outside narrator as soon as Harker is abandoned in the hospital, and there is no journaling from anyone else, even though Dr. Seward and Mina, by a different name, are featured in this story. The ending comes rushed in a kind of point-form outline that leaves us to wonder what could have been if it had been fleshed out. It features a completely different ending and a trajectory for some characters that is very different from their equivalent in Stoker's novel. That said, even with all these major differences, this is very much the Dracula story. The characters, though not identical to their counterparts, are identifiable for the most part and the story still has the major plot points that one expects, with some notable exceptions. We've already established that we can't vouch for the pedigree of the story one way or the other, but it is curious that narrative elements that only ever appeared in Stoker's notes, but never in his novel, such as the deaf-mute house servant, and the detective whose name was of some significance to the author, would appear in this version. 
it does leave us with the mystery of what extent the author had any input in this translation, assuming he even knew about it. And if by some miracle this version was just an accident that happened to have the seven similar points to Stoker's notes that Darus pointed out in his foreword to Makdmirkrona, it begs the question of whose story is it? This is not the only time we have to ask ourselves that question as we look at our next adaptation stop on the road to Universal. This time we're looking at yet another translated work, though this one carries no mystery as to whether Stoker was involved, because this one is purely a bootleg. That said, this version is more than simply a translation, and deserves to be part of our discussion, as it takes a look at the story from the unique position of those for whom the name Dracula has a lot more history and weight to it. Published a full 64 years before Coppola dipped his toes into this particular creative well, Dracula in Istanbul was adapted by Ali Risa Sefiglu, and it was the first to establish a link between Count Dracula and Vlad the Impaler in 1928. Originally, the title was The Impaling Voivod in Turkish, and presented as his own work, Sefiglu presented the familiar story of a renamed young man who is traveling, this time from Istanbul to Transylvania, to finalize the sale of some property, and we all know the rest. In fact, this version follows the plot beats so closely that it is very much like reading Dracula for the most part. The parts that differ, however, are in the details. For one, as I've mentioned, the action has been moved from London to Istanbul, and, following in this vein, the author has changed the character names to Turkish ones. And for the record, I did make an attempt privately to pronounce some of these names, and came to the conclusion that, out of respect for anyone who does speak the language, I am opting to use their English counterparts instead. As you can already tell from how I have butchered the poor author's name, I apologize. Names and places weren't the only thing to get a facelift in this version, though. One of the changes that is subtle but does shift the dynamic of Van Helsing's crew is that every male character, save for Jonathan's counterpart, is a veteran of the Turkish War for Independence. Being survivors of any kind of war would be difficult, and would normally have more of a tone of all quiet on the Western Front, but this book drops in references to that war every chance it gets, and it's all pomp and glory. This is very much a propaganda book, as it pushes the beauty and wonder of Turkey as a country, and the proud accomplishments of the Ottoman Empire. This also extends to the people populating the story, as all of the males, even the solicitor, are strapping men of courage and valor, and they're all wonderful and handsome. The women, too, are all of superior stock, all intelligence and beauty and strength. In fact, one of the women is treated a bit differently this time around. Starting again with Mina, as we did for Stoker's version, we're introduced to her in the same manner through her fiancé's journal entries, but unlike Jonathan Harker's original writings, his counterpart has a lot more to say about his beloved. He talks about her love of history and how she studies it. He talks about how much she would have loved this trip with him to see the Carpathians because she knows so much about the region. He positively fawns over her a lot. And unlike Stoker's original, this version of the solicitor comes across almost like a love-struck puppy. And for herself, Mina's counterpart is not a shrinking violet. She worries about her man, as it seems to be taking him an awful long time to get back and she hasn't heard from him. 
but she also doesn't hesitate to start wondering what the matter is. She even makes a few sassy quips about there better be something wrong because she's not going to be pleased if he just forgot to write and tell her that he was okay. These are small touches, but they're extremely effective in taking Mina's character out of the stiff Victorian idealized woman and making her seem more human. That said, much the same way as Van Helsing praises her in the original book, Parker's counterpart later goes on to talk about how much she embodies the ideal Turkish woman who's all strength and valor and courage and intelligence and also happens to be stunningly beautiful, as they all are. So in this sense, she's trading Victorian English perfection ideals for Turkish independence perfection ideals. But there's still a trade-off that she seems less like her only reason for being there is to be accommodating to the men to serve their goals. She actually has some interests, and seemingly some personality, too, even if it is all filtered through the lens of nationalistic pride. And speaking of that nation, if you are unaware, the country of Turkey, according to a quick Google search, is about 99.8% Muslim. There are some polls that claim it might be lower, but all of the estimates are in the high 90s range. This wouldn't be something to bring up normally, except that this bootleg version of Dracula takes place mostly in Istanbul. And while the narrative doesn't stray too much from the story that Stoker wrote, this does present a question of how to tackle those scenes where the vampire is faced with Christian symbols. As we established when we talked about the novel last time, Brahm had been particularly inspired by Henry Irving's turn as Mephistopheles in Faust with a particular scene where the demon tempter is repelled by the cross, written specifically for that version of the play. In turn, Christian artifacts make a lot of appearances in the novel in the form of rosaries, crucifixes, and the communion wafer for the Eucharist. How does a Muslim author deal with these scenes? Well, for the most part, a general swap isn't impossible, and this tended to be the most common solution, trading crosses and wafers for pages of the Quran. There were other workarounds as well, such as fully omitting any attack on Mina's counterpart and doing away with any need for the Eucharist for her. That said, there were other scenes that posed some interesting challenges to the author, specifically the one where Jonathan's counterpart arrived at the hotel and was going to be making his way to the Borgo Pass later. It was easy to replace the cross and the wafer with the Quran in Istanbul, but Bistritz was in Romania, where a good number of people were still some form of Christian. Rather than just skip this scene, Sifiglu embellishes it, still featuring the woman insisting on giving her cross away, but also adding that the young man was Muslim and carried sacred objects of his own faith. What's particularly interesting is the small conversation they had about how God's love and goodness carries through intentions, and in the end, Though he was not changing his faith, the woman still insisted he take the cross with him as insurance. Again, it's a small detail, but it's brought up again by Van Helsing's counterpart later. While they use the strength of their own faith against the vampire to great effect, they also acknowledge that any holy symbol, when used in faith, will produce the same results, more or less. Given the fact that Vlad Tepes's reign of terror was marked by his defiance of the Ottoman Empire, and the taking up of the cause defending the Holy Roman Empire against the Muslim Turks, this is an interesting point of view for these characters to be taking. Now, it should be granted that this book came out in 1928, and long after Dracula's battles with the Ottoman Empire had been mostly reduced to a blip in history, 
so religious tensions were likely not at a fever pitch when it was published. Still, considering that the entire basis for the conflict between Dracula and the Turkish Sultan had been hanging on these religious differences, is a curious choice and offers some insight into how the author viewed this particular historical figure. It's not an insignificant view either, considering that while it is true that there were those in Romania who do still very much laud Dracula's accomplishments and his defiance of the Ottoman Empire, those who celebrate his memory often gloss over how he turned his cruelty against his own people. In acknowledging their religious beliefs as a guard against the vampire, the author is effectively calling out the evil of the man, but absolving the people of the land he represented, which, when taken into account what Stoker's count represented, is a pretty significant shift. The last element that we have to address about this book is inclusion of their view of the warlord, which is the first time on record that Count Dracula was linked to Vlad Tepesh. If you missed the previous episode where we covered Vlad Dracula, we had found out through both Elizabeth Miller and David J. Skull, among others, that when crafting his vampire count, Bram Stoker had only sparingly researched into this historical figure, and had mostly just taken the name of the Wallachian prince. There is no evidence to support that Stoker even knew about the atrocities that the vampire's namesake had been responsible for, as that history was not well known in Western Europe in the 1890s. The same could not be said for Turkey, however, for whom the name Dracula is a very loaded one, for obvious reasons. In fact, said atrocities get some definite attention in the book when Van Helsing's counterpart is educating the young men on what they're dealing with. Instead of a sinister count who's intent on bringing down civilization through his devious ways or his political prowess, this version of the vampire is in Istanbul for pure and simple revenge. The older professor then goes on to recite the most common stories told about Vlad Tepesh, recounting his Turkish victims as martyrs for the cause of nationalistic pride. Because of this, we get a very different and still quite evil version of the vampire that came to conquer, which is a far cry from what he would become later, even in his own Turkish adaptation. Still, that's a little further ahead in our journey yet. For now, we're going to leave the beauty and the pride of Istanbul behind, and make our way back in time by a few years and pay a visit to Visburg. We're going to continue on our journey with Dracula to Universal, but as a bit of a rest stop on the way, a friend of the podcast would like to chat with you about a different kind of nostalgia than the type that I usually cover. Take it away, Naomi. You remember that sound? Yeah, you do. The 1990s. It was fun! Lots of fun music, good times, bookended by pop bands. And right in the middle, we got a little grungy. So many artists came and went and left us wondering, what are they doing now? We know what Marky Mark ended up doing, but what about the rest of the funky bunch? Alanis Morissette had a pop career before she made it big with Jagged Little Pill. The KLF, an EDM band from England, got Tammy Wynette to sing on one of their tunes. All kinds of crazy stuff happened, and we're gonna to talk to you about it with interviews with some of the biggest stars of the 90s on Dope Nostalgia, the podcast. I'm Naomi Carmack, and I'm your host. Check us out on Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, anywhere you get your podcasts. And look us up on the internet at dopenostalgia.com. As we can see, by the 1920s, 
It had already been well established that the Dracula story was not only very adaptable to whatever version of the tale we wanted or needed, it was also very popular with audiences. In cases like Macht Mirkrna and Dracula in Istanbul, they had the added bonus of being outside of the loop of Western Europe, either through remote locations or different languages that weren't known by those who would be looking for such similarities. The same thing could not be said for German, which is a language that many people are more aware of, and that made the brazen attempt by Prana Films to lift the story that much more baffling. Yes, friends, we have gone back to 1922, wherein we got our first look at the vampire account, albeit in disguise. The full title of this film is Nosferatu, ein Symphonie des Grauens, and it was brought to us by director F.W. Murnau, co-director Alvin Grau, and screenwriter Heinrich Gelin. This film remains a staple in classic vampire films, despite Florence Stoker's attempt to have it destroyed. According to the abridged account in J. Gordon Melton's The Vampire Book, when the film was released in 1922, the company was already sitting on very rocky ground financially due to the debts it had amassed to make Nosferatu in the first place. This wasn't at all helped when word of their successful premiere got back to Florence, who petitioned the British Incorporated Society of Authors to help in a lawsuit against Prana. By that point, the film company was already in receivership, and it was soon evident that there was no money to be gained in suing them. Still, there was money to be made on their film, and in 1925, when the courts finally sided with Florence Stoker, she insisted every copy of the film be destroyed. It was a pyrrhic victory, however, because three months after the fact, Stoker was contacted by the Film Society, a new English organization who sought her approval to show the very well-received classic film Nosferatu. As we know by the fact that it is available still to this day, this was a battle that Florence Stoker was never going to win. Even though she did eventually successfully repress this film in her lifetime, a copy of it did resurface after her death, and it was available to be shown to the public in full again by 1984. And obviously, this is to say nothing of the versions that we've already seen in Iceland and Turkey. While we know that Florence was trying to protect the legacy of her husband's work, specifically the financial legacy on which she was depending, from this vantage point, we can also see how there was just too much about this story that was useful to the public. The tale was not only popular, but also very accommodating to a wide variety of audiences. One didn't need to be an Englishman, or even white for that matter, to see the merit in the story, and that made it very adaptable for any audience. More than this, it was something that could translate to whatever story the audience needed to tell, specifically if that audience needed to talk about something they were very deeply afraid of. For Makhmirkana, the Count was a political figure, bringing an even more worrisome threat of the downfall of social and political structures in Britain on his quest to conquer Western Europe. In that case, he was not just a foreigner, but also a very powerful one, and his vampiric nature took on an almost allegorical nature as he infiltrated English high society and left the victims of Lucy and Dr. Seward in his wake. In Dracula and Istanbul, he became the relived nightmare of their past, threatening to bring the horrors of historical conflicts into the modern world, as well as bringing about the end of their newly gained independence. In that story, 
He is a vengeful specter set on revenge and still capable of getting it, because no one knew that something so dangerous was just waiting to be discovered. We see shades of this in Nosferatu's Count Orlok, but there is something much sadder and something even more sinister lurking in his shadows. When talking about Nosferatu, one has to contextualize the environment that this film was made in. The timing couldn't have been more bleak, with Germany massively wounded by a lost battle and the reparations that France insisted on following the disastrous War to End All Wars then helped to completely tank their economy. To make matters worse, the country was hit hard by the Spanish flu and followed by a massive famine, which only added to the heavy casualties that it had already suffered due to the war. All the pomp and glory that was present in Dracula and Istanbul in the wake of their battles is completely absent here, as the reality left a lot of survivors crippled, scarred, and suffering with incredible bouts of PTSD, which had no outlet and no treatment available for it on top of leaving many sick, poor, and starving. This ruinous atmosphere is well reflected in the film, foregoing Stoker's aristocratic environment that the main characters lived in, and replacing it with a kind of hollow dread in all of the buildings. Likewise, the action is missing, replaced by the slow-growing menace of the vampire's hidden activities, only shown in the procession of coffins that he's left in his wake. While this is still the Dracula story, what is ultimately missing from it is the rise of the heroes on the side of good to triumph over evil. While the vampire is vanquished at the end of the movie, it has come at a very heavy and irreversible cost. Mina's counterpart in this version has been called to make the ultimate sacrifice for the greater good, but even so, the damage is done, and there's no getting back the people who have been lost. In that sense, this is almost Stoker's horror that he teased come to reality. The vampire arrived, and though he was defeated, in all he accomplished, there were still no winners after his death, and there was a lot more loss on the horizon. If you've done any reading on this film, you've likely already come across how the rat-like Orlok encompasses many anti-Semitic stereotypes, particularly in the way that he looks. A brief look over at the physical rundown of Jewish stereotypes from back in the day talk about the hook nose specifically as well as the hooded, beady eyes, both of which can be seen in Max Schreck's silent and very imposing count. This was far from an accident, as we'll see, but it should be noted that this element of the story didn't generate with Murnau, Grau, or Galen. Thomas L. Cesser's article Six Degrees of Nosferatu points out that this distrustful othering, particularly of the Slavic region, was more than present in Stoker's original novel. After all, in every description we've seen up to this point, the vampire is intent on conquest, and Stoker even added a few notes about the Count's degenerate features, such as the hair on his palms, but also the fact that he has an aquiline nose. These details are small in isolation, but they were enough to be able to build on in the grand scheme of things, and build on them the filmmakers did. Alcesser writes that superimposed in the figure of Nosferatu are several contradictory and conflicting ethnic and racial others, making him at once an in-between-worlds creature and a babushka doll of worlds within worlds. In this sense, he is everything we've already seen in Dracula prior. 
He is this otherworldly threat that sits, as Louis S. Warren had said before him, at the edge of territorial boundaries of racial purity and evolutionary destruction. What makes him that much more dangerous and terrifying, especially to the eyes of purists, is that he did not come alone. Much like Dracula before him, Count Orlok brought with him the boxes of Earth, but teeming within them were rats to bring the plague. Going back to what Nick Groom had to say in his book The Vampire, A New History, he wrote that plague was both supernaturally incorporeal and yet an identifiable condition, and despite the awareness of contagion being rudimentary, plague was nevertheless deployed as an instrument of mass destruction. And mass destruction is indeed something that this vampire manages to bring. This version of the story is set in 1838, which is the real lifetime period when Germany was hit with a nasty cholera epidemic. For those of you who might recall, this was six years after the awful outbreak of the disease that affected Silgo in Ireland, which was the epidemic that Bram Stoker's mother, Charlotte, had survived. It doesn't take an analyst, however, to connect that a much more recent tragedy of the Spanish flu epidemic and the famine that followed would have been on the minds of most in Germany at the time. And while the plague rats might be seen as just a simple metaphor for the sickness having arrived in Visburg, Elsesser had pointed out that one of the casualties of the Great War had been the settlements of people as the dividing lines between countries shifted in the power struggles. One of the primary groups that had been affected were the Jews, and according to Eli Barnavi for his article World War I and the Jews, when the Russian army made its way west into Poland, Lithuania, and Belarus, the Jews were suspected of collaboration with the enemy, and 600,000 of them were banished from the front by the Tsarist army. This meant that there were a lot of refugees and displaced people left by the time the war was over, and, as Barnavi pointed out, a lot of scapegoating on both sides, as Jewish people found themselves unwelcome and distrusted afterwards, even those who had served their respective countries. What's worse, Nosferatu well encapsulates not only that dread brought on by fear, but also the implied horrors of that mass destruction that it might bring to the community if it isn't stopped. It should be noted that in most versions of the Dracula story, the vampire really doesn't succeed in getting too far in his conquest, killing off really only a few people depending on the version. As far as we know, this version is the first to really show the vampire count as being capable of destroying entire communities and coming even close to the destructive potential that Bram had feared in his novel. Of course, that's not all this film is known for, and with good reason. This is the very first time that Dracula has been captured on film, and despite Florence Stoker's best efforts, his influence got around. That much is evident for the impact that it had on the next stop of our journey. But before we leave Visburg behind us, we need to acknowledge what Orlok did for our Dracula story, and the changes that Murnau and company gave to the tale that would carry through and override even Stoker's vision. The first and most obvious is the vampire's dramatic death. Much has been made over time of the fact that this was the birthplace of the vampire's sun allergy. While the undead's nefarious activities were normally relegated to the time between sunset and sunrise, it was never because it would cause their destruction. 
Even in Stoker's novel, Dracula walks freely during the day, but he's unable to transform into animals or mist unless it's noon or after dark. Orlok, by contrast, never transforms at all, but rather has command of all his plague rats as they move about the city in almost a mist-like manner. He also has command of Nock, the stand-in for Stoker's ill-used lunatic, Mr. R.N. Renfield. This is another significant first, as prior to this, Renfield has barely factored into our stories. In Stoker's novel, he's really only there to announce the presence of the vampire, and to be a convenient way for Dracula to enter the asylum when he attacks the Harkers. Otherwise, he might have been entirely forgotten as a character, and was in the versions that we've seen to this point. This is the first time that we see a man who is brought to a lunatic asylum in any of our adaptations, but more importantly, he actually plays a significant role in the story. This is the first time that Renfield is being cast as a disciple of evil, so to speak. He not only facilitates Orlok's arrival in Visburg, he is directly responsible for sending Harker's counterpart to his castle, and even choosing where he will settle. Another element that Murnau and company introduced into this character that is going to factor in heavily in later versions, is that of the caretaker role. Again, he brings the vampire to the city, but also calls out to him when he senses that Orlok is in danger. When Mina's counterpart tricks the vampire into catching his first Visburg sunrise, he tries to warn him, and when he's too late, he laments and mourns the loss of the monster. All of this is to say that this is the first time that we see Renfield as an active agent in the story, if a little one-dimensional. That said, he can be forgiven this time around, as this is a silent film and there's only so much that filmmakers could get across to the audience in the dialogue slides, and only so much that we can garner from looking back at it with modern eyes. Renfield's role in this tale, when he gets to have one, is destined to become a lot more nuanced when he's given more to say, but his is not the only role that the film changed. For those who've watched the film, Nosferatu's Count Orlok is genuinely creepy, even without context. His silent antics only serve to make him more unsettling, not just to look at, but also to see in motion. This is the last time that Count Dracula would be shown in film as being completely monstrous. He does have some stints here and there of being purely a villain in other media, but on the silver screen, this was not only the first time he was able to shine in all his monstrous glory, but also the last time he was ever depicted as a creeping terror in the night. This makes it slightly ironic that the first instance where there is an established direct connection between Mina and Dracula is also in this film. It is true that Dracula has a connection to Mina in the book when he forces her to drink from him, but as we've established, her attack was a punishment for her husband, not a willful want to hurt her directly. What's more is that the connection that Dracula has with Mina is not one that he uses much at all, aside from really to spy on their plans. Otherwise, when the attack is over, his interest has pretty much been used up, and her body and mind are mostly of no interest to him at all. This definitely is not the case with Orlok. Setting the tone early, the Sinister Count spies a small picture of Mina's counterpart and remarks about her throat. This, of course, is foreshadowing for later, when it is revealed that the only way to stop the plague in Visburg is to stop the vampire, and the only person who can do that is an idealistic woman. 
This is the first time also that the plot has divorced itself from Stoker's fears of sexually liberated women, and in doing so, made the woman into a tragic hero of the story instead of a MacGuffin that must be saved to reinforce the order of the day. As we mentioned before, her sacrifice didn't bring anyone back to life, but it stopped the infection, and it was all through a direct invitation to the vampire. Now it should be noted that this was far from romantic, and still counts as an assault, but it does make for the first time of many that a woman would bring herself to the waiting fangs of the vampire, and Hollywood just couldn't help playing with that idea. Speaking of Hollywood, I do believe that this brings us to our destination. Welcome, my patient listeners, to the home of the Universal Monsters. Now, to be clear, the actual Universal Monsters franchise started well before Dracula made his way to American soil. The true beginning of the film franchise was back in the silent era in 1925, when a masked phantom terrorized an opera house in pursuit of a particular singer. We'll be getting back to Eric and his specific brand of music lessons in his own episodes, but for now, let's take a look at the journey that Dracula had to take over both sea and media to get to the landmark film that has given us this icon in horror. This version started not on a film lot, but in a theater house far away from sunny California in the winter of 1927. In truth, it had started a long time before that, as the war of who owned the rights to stage Dracula had already started in 1921 and was still going strong. This story changed hands many times over the years since Brahms' death, and his widow had gained a reputation for having an iron grip on the rights and who got to use them. The first person who was able to secure permission to stage Dracula at a greatly reduced rate for himself, and with most of the benefits going to Florence Stoker, was Mr. Hamilton Dean. Fans of the classic monster film will recognize that name as one of the two that appears on the title card for 1931's Universal film, but it had a long way to go before it was ready for the silver screen. If you recall from earlier, there had been that dramatic reading of the book staged by Brahm himself, using the players at the Lyceum Theatre where he worked. While it still counts as being the first time the book met the stage, you'll also recall that it was a four-hour ordeal that had not been even slightly adapted for an audience. Dean was going to have to make the story out of letters and journal entries and put it into something that could be dramatized. This was going to be challenging enough on its own, but on top of that, he was also going to have to do all of this on a severely tight budget. The results were something a little less opulent than Mrs. Stoker had been hoping for. In the 2008 version of his book, Hollywood Gothic, David J. Scal wrote about the limitations that Dean's play had going for it, not the least of which were that his budgetary constraints forced him to lop off the atmospheric beginning and the climactic end. This was coupled with the fact that, according to multiple sources, the dialogue was not very well written, and sounded nothing like the book, nor natural speech. While Dean was quite enthusiastic about putting on the best Dracula that he could, he was, by accounts of people at the time, not involved with a first-rate theatrical group, and would have been able to produce shows that were a far cry from the quality that Brahms' former employer, Henry Irving, was able to put on. This is, unfortunately for Dean, the kind of theatre experience that the Widow Stoker had become accustomed to, as well as the much better pay that those plays would have produced. When responses to the play took aim at the quality, Florence was quick to wash her hands of it, refusing to attend any performances, 
or meet with any of the cast. This would eventually lead to tensions between Stoker and Dean, with her eventually trying to shut him out of the rights to the play, and getting someone else to rewrite the show to her own particular standards. Despite this, the play did excellent when he took it out touring the provinces. That isn't to say that the critics liked it, and this was especially true in London, where reviews were utterly scathing. While Stoker's novel garnered a middling to generally well-received response when Dracula was released, Dean's play was utterly panned by everyone except the audiences that came to see it. Much like modern cinema, it turns out that theatre critics weren't the final word on what people wanted to see, and people wanted to see this strange, awkwardly delivered tale of a vampire that haunts what was known then as a drawing room melodrama. People wanted to see it so much that it was boosted from the small theatrical showings to a much bigger venue to accommodate everyone who was coming to the play, and one such person who saw it was American publisher Horace Livewright. Before we move on, we should address some of the things that Hamilton Dean did to help add a bit to our Dracula tale that made it what it is today. Unlike the previous incarnations that we've seen of the story, Dean had to create a version that was approved by both the monetary and Florence constraints. We already know that he wasn't running on the highest budget in the world, which accounted for him cutting most of the extra scenes that took place outside of the one room. One of the things that this did was force him to utilize the characters in more practical ways than the previous versions had. There was no room to keep three suitors and the trappings of the aristocratic lifestyle in his play. As such, the characters are boiled down to just the ones that will perform for the story that they had left. And something else that had to change quite dramatically was Dracula himself. This would be the first time that the vampire would be given a real voice. It was true that prior to this, Orlok had been given some scant dialogue, but that amounted to barely more than a condensed quote from the book. Given that this was a silent film, Nosferatu is still showcasing the monster as a villain role with no layers to it. He's evil, and you know that from the first time you see him. In a play, however, the character is allowed to have more nuance, and considering the changes to the story, it was a necessity. Here, there's no journal to take the impression from, and no captive in a castle to show off. So Dean, under Florence's watchful eye, was forced to remake the Count into a character in his own right, and specifically one that would be able to mingle with society. Enter the Gentleman Monster. Dean's play was the first to dress up the vampire, and as Skull mentions in Hollywood Gothic, it was the first time that Dracula was able to interact with the characters, rather than merely hang outside their bedroom windows. The dimension this brought to the vampire has had a very long-reaching effect in creating the phenomenon of the elegant killers that we know in pop culture. Now, to be fair, the Byronic vampire, the Saturnine monster that moves in society circles, was already a thing prior to Dean getting a hold of the idea. That said, by the 1920s, it wasn't Ruthven's name that the public knew, nor were they being drawn out by Polidori's story. Dracula had taken his place as the definitive vampire that emerged in popular consciousness, and it was this vampire that caught the attention of the American publisher who knew a golden opportunity when he saw it. This is the part of the story where John L. Balderston joins the party. As mentioned, Livewright was able to see the potential in Dracula and wanted to bring it to New York stages. 
That said, potential didn't amount to success, and it was clear that Dean's writing, as well as some of the more gimmicky elements of his stage play, such as having a nurse on hand for those who couldn't handle the antics of the Count, were not necessarily going to fly with American audiences. There was also that little issue of having to negotiate with the infamously difficult Florence Stoker. All of this was made that much more difficult for Livewright, when it was clear that Florence wanted nothing to do with him, and he was forced to find a go-between to get what he wanted. This is where Balderston comes in. An American writer working as a correspondent in London, Balderston was a playwright with some success under his belt already. He had less of the brash elements in his personality that Florence so disliked in Horace Livewright, and was eventually able to get Stoker to agree to allow him to act as play doctor. Scal wrote that Balderston, for his part, saw the London play as nothing more than a shocker, and a pretty tacky one at that, but he also saw areas for improvement to make it, as he put it, a damned good shocker. Though he was initially reluctant to take the job, at first asking that his credit be removed to disassociate with it, he eventually warmed to the project, and, as anyone who's seen the 1931 movie already knows, his name would go down with Deans as part of the duo that would bring Dracula to the screen. But first, it had to cross the pond properly. The trials and tribulations of the road to getting everyone on board and everything lined up to make this happen is a much bigger story than this, of course. And for more information, do look up David J. Scal's Hollywood Gothic for the full picture. For our journey, however, we're going to skip our way over to New York, where, after a few soft openings to test the waters, Dracula made its Broadway debut in October of 1927. This was an entirely different experience from the London version of the play, though they kept certain elements, such as the nurse on standby to tend to those pesky fainters. That said, aside from the actor who played Renfield in London keeping his role, the rest of the production got an entirely new face, including better set production and an almost entirely new cast. And this is where we meet the handsome Hungarian actor that would become the face of the role. In truth, an English actor by the name of Raymond Huntley, who would go on to have a very long and well-respected career, was initially offered the role for less money than he felt it was worth. As the story goes, a relatively unknown immigrant actor who had fled Hungary for political reasons was willing to take the role for less money. It is reported that Bela Lugosi still only spoke limited English at the time of taking the role and learned all of his lines phonetically, but the actor would go to do well enough to intimidate and charm audiences for quite a long run. While there were still a few missteps in the writing and production elements, the critics in New York were far kinder to this version of the play and went on to be a smashing success. It would eventually go on to tour, with Huntley taking the role for its run across America, and the interest in Dracula grew not only in the eyes of the public, but also in the film companies on the opposite coast. By this point in the tale's journey, there were more than a few players involved in getting the vampire on screen legitimately. As you can imagine, this got to be a bit of a tangled mess, as Florence Stoker held the rights for the novel, but, as we know from what we've seen, Dracula as a story is nothing if not adaptive to its environment. The play had given the world a bit more of an appetite for vampires, and even Dean had pointed out that if Dracula couldn't be brought to the public, another vampire would certainly do. And speaking of the play, 
This had brought up the proverbial issue of who's on first in regards to who had say in where it would go. If it were purely about the novel, that would have been an easy gain for the widow Stoker, who had those rights alone. The problem was that the story that had gained so much steam was not the novel, but Dean and Balderston's rewrites, and Horace Livewright was the one who had brought the play to America, so he had his fingers in there too. Adding to the confusion, as the interested parties involved themselves in trying to get as much money for the property as possible while the studios were disentangling who exactly owned what, none other than Count Orlock arrived on the scene to complicate everything further. Conversations about rights and movie-making came to a halt for a short while as Universal tried to get that copy of Nosferatu away from an enterprising American who was trying to hold it hostage for as much money as possible, and other studios circled to see if this was a property worth getting their hands on. In short, Hollywood had come sniffing around, and despite the fact that an article had announced Universal as having bought the rights for Dracula, the reality was that said rights were up in the air at that point, and it was anyone's game and anyone's guess how everything would turn out monetarily for all the people involved in the core of this mess. While I'm going to assume that this isn't news to most people, a brief spoiler is that Universal, obviously, won the bid to bring Dracula to the big screen. Of course, they had to contend with some pretty major issues on their end of the deal too, not the least of which was the changing landscape of film. Much like with the Prana fiasco, Florence Stoker was informed that Universal was going to make Dracula by a newspaper clipping that announced the star to be none other than Conrad Veidt, known for his roles in The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and The Man Who Laughs, the latter going on to inspire the iconic grin of the Joker. One problem with that was that Veidt was German and still had quite a heavy accent, which wouldn't have mattered in the silent era, but was going to be increasingly difficult for him in the age of the talkies. Another issue was that Universal didn't yet own the rights to the film, and in the ensuing mess of ownership stalled in getting into the ring to try and negotiate for them. They had other issues at hand to worry about, however. Their biggest star of the day, Lon Chaney, had gone from being a free agent to being under contract to MGM, making him entirely unavailable for the Dracula role, which is what they would have preferred. Cheney had made them quite a bit of money in their Hunchback of Notre Dame and Phantom of the Opera films, and had become a very bankable star in his own right. That made him the obvious choice for the role of the Sinister Count, and the only person they were considering, with Conrad Veidt now back in Europe and unable to fill the role. Unfortunately, it was an impending tragedy that would free Cheney up from his contract. The actor had been given leave due to his health for what was assumed to be bronchitis, only to discover his cough was actually cancer, and Cheney would die well before Dracula was ever released. That doesn't mean that all of their trump cards were played out, however. Universal had managed to pull together to get Todd Browning to direct, whose work had gone over very well in the last few years. And added to this was the talents of cameraman Carl Freund, and this picture was shaping up to be something of note, even if the atmosphere around the studio in regards to Dracula was middling to outright hostile. In truth, Universal might never have made this film had it not been for the efforts of Carl Lamley Jr. It was his enthusiasm for the film that finally broke down the wall, 
And eventually, Universal had put in the money to get the rights to the novel, the Hamilton Dean version of the play, a never-produced version that Florence had commissioned when she was unhappy with Dean's version, and the Broadway version that had been doctored by John Balderston. The challenges that lay ahead of them were many, including getting the copy of Nosferatu, shooting on an ever-dwindling budget, trying to rewrite the versions they had to be something that would work in a sound-equipped film, and possibly, more importantly, finding someone to fill the Count's imposing cape. While there were some fierce shopping around for the part, there was pretty much only one person who wanted it badly enough to take a pay cut to say the words, I am Dracula. That person, of course, was none other than the actor who had been the first to don the cape on Broadway, Bela Lugosi. The cast had been set, the rights had been secured, the director was on board, mostly. The armadillos were all lined up, and now they just needed to shoot the damn thing, right? Well, if you are new to the world of making anything creative, you will be forgiven for thinking that this is how anything creative works. Projects of any scope are always mired in complications, setbacks, unforeseen challenges, and unless this is a vanity project that's funded by a billionaire who doesn't care how it turns out, budgetary constraints. That last part hounded the production of Dracula, causing much of the criticisms that would follow the film to this day. In fact, much of the criticism can be traced back to a lot of issues with the director himself. Todd Browning, you see, had been a bit of a force when it came to directing in the silent era of film, when directors were able to give their commentary more or less continually while they were shooting. In the age of sound pictures, that was no longer possible, which had set him at a disadvantage of trying to figure out exactly what to do as he tried to retrain himself in his trade. Unfortunately, this also meant that the cast were given very little direction at all, accounting for some of the more lackluster elements. There was also Browning's insistence on shooting sequentially and keeping the camera from having any dynamic shots at all, which is why the film often comes off almost like a play. There were also rarely any close-up shots, and it caused quite a bit of friction between Browning and Freund, who was starting to feel the director's demands were stepping on his toes and his ability to do his job. And then there were the armadillos. Browning demanded the opening shot of Dracula and his brides rising from their evening dirt nap be intercut with the animals, though no one quite knew why. Just like everything else associated with this character, there is so much more to this story than just what we're going over here. The journey isn't quite over yet, but it's good to take stock of exactly what kind of ride this character has been on since his literary birth, and even before. So many of the links in this chain of events, even just the ones that led Dracula to Hollywood, were tenuous at best, and most of these were just a yes or no question away, from being the difference between us even seeing the now iconic image that we know now. Some of it, like Horace Livewright being in London at just the right time, was just dumb luck, and it seems strange now to think that something that would become one of the strongest properties and the most enduring character outside of Sherlock Holmes would have been so fragile in his climb to get to the big screen. It seems almost wrong in some ways, that something that would become so important to film and pop culture would open to a decent response but with little fanfare and almost no advertising. But, much like with Orlock, whose movie Universal took extensive notes from, 
His influence and grip was working its way through the public in more ways than one. And Dracula had some help from a demographic that isn't often talked about. During the silent era, any actor had the potential to get work. It was still pretty fierce competition, but as we've seen from Veidt and Lugosi, if you could act, you could make movies. The introduction of sound made a huge difference to the filming process, not only in terms of how the director was able to create the film, but who could star in it. A lot of actors found themselves struggling to find work now amid the changing landscape of movie making. That said, for a brief period, there were still some unique opportunities for actors who either didn't speak great English or didn't speak the language at all. At Universal, someone who championed the foreign film market was Paul Koner, and it was him we have to thank for Dracula's Spanish twin version. Koner worked tirelessly making films on Universal sets after hours, often adding to them to create distinctive atmosphere for the Spanish language films they produced. This was definitely the case for the Spanish Dracula, directed by George Melford, starring Carlos Villaria in the role of the Count and Lupita Tovar, whom Koner would later go on to marry. This version is often cited as being the superior film, utilizing more dynamic shots using a crane, and generally having better pacing. The story remains mostly the same, with some key differences such as the inclusion of the staking of Lucy and Renfield's more violent death. Whether it's better than Browning's version is a matter of taste, but it was something of a triumph for Universal at the time when they needed it. Opening in Mexico to very positive reviews and glowing praise for the Spanish stars, even Bela Lugosi had nothing but praise for the film and appeared with Carlos and Lupita to do a cross-promotion at one point. This version is not only important to remember because it was one of the last films to be produced in this distinctive manner, but also because it showcased a brief but fascinating world of film that isn't really talked about. In recent years, we've seen a lot of well-deserved backlash against Hollywood's habit of whitewashing all its films to include nothing but an all-white cast or tokenized characters that are almost always relegated to side roles with little to no part in the plot. It is unfortunate that Universal and Hollywood at large didn't listen to people like Paul Koner, who saw the potential in creating for different diverse markets. The flip side to this, however, was that eventually different countries would take matters into their own hands, creating their own film landscapes and giving us legitimate diversity by creating for themselves, which is not a bad thing either. That said, if the success of the Spanish version of Dracula is anything to go by, we can appreciate how much potential there was there, and how much audiences could appreciate the story when it had been adjusted to integrate them into the narrative. Moreover, this twin version was very much part of saving the company from what came next. Dracula, both the English and Spanish versions, was released in the winter of 1931, at the cusp of the start to the Great Depression. Because both versions of the film had been made under budget and had managed to bring in audiences, the studio turned a very good profit on both films, giving them a cushion that would help them to weather the coming financial storm. It isn't unfair to say that fans of Universal Monsters have both versions of the vampire to thank for helping to create the path for the rest to follow. Without Dracula, there's no telling how Universal would have fared, and while the studio may very well have survived, that doesn't mean that they would have been as willing to take any risks. 
Without the added bonus of the Spanish version, it's also possible that the revenue wouldn't have been enough to justify looking at investing in more properties, such as Frankenstein or the Wolfman, which Lamley Sr. was absolutely not interested in. So taking that into account, even though it wasn't the first film in the franchise, the trials of getting Dracula to the screen laid the groundwork for the rest of the Universal monsters to stand on. In looking at this extended journey that this story and character has been on, while it might seem like a bit of a strange notion, what we've really seen is the making of a fairy tale. It's true that Dracula is no benevolent blue fairy, even if he has come to make you into a real vampire, but if we've seen nothing else throughout this trip through history, we've seen how this story and character is able to take the shape of whatever is needed of it for whatever audience is needing to hear it. From his inception in literature to his silver screen debut, Dracula has been used to embody the fears of Victorian England about the encroaching outsiders from both East and West, the threat of political power imbalances and what they represent when left unchecked, the power of propaganda, the evils of xenophobic pestilence, and a figure that can encompass both sexual appeal and inherent dangers of those baser desires. As a fairy tale figure, Dracula has the power to change with the times, our societal needs, and whatever anxieties we need to express. He continues to teach us just as much about the past as he does about who we are now and what we desire and fear. And that was only the beginning of Dracula's rise to being the king of the vampires. Obviously, this is hardly the full story, and I can't stress enough that there is more for you to find in the show notes. The links you find there will be invaluable to you if you're doing research, or even if you're just a vampire nerd who needs more fangs in your life. And we aren't finished yet. We have one more episode on the horizon next week, this time going over where our fairy tale vampire has found himself since he made his home in Hollywood. So I hope you'll join me next week when we leave the undead Bela Lugosi and make our way to the many other faces of Dracula. And with that, I have to say a big thank you to you for listening to my extended guide to Dracula's journey to Universal. This episode of the Armchair Scholar's Guide was written and researched by Danielle Claussen. Episodes can be found on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, usually bi-weekly. If you would like to see transcripts of the podcast, they are available at the $2 tier on my Patreon. Patrons also get early access, and higher tiers even get the blooper reels, which often includes me singing and my cat's numerous interruptions. A very special thanks to Jonathan Glass for his help in making sure the sound was the best it could be. His album, The Haunted Planet, a collection of spooky nostalgic tracks, inspired by books and shows from yesteryear, is available through iTunes and Spotify, and is perfect for this time of year. And you should go check it out right now. And if all this talk of nostalgia is your thing, and you need a break from the 19th century, please do check out another friend of the podcast, Naomi, over at Dope Nostalgia Podcast, for interviews, trivia, and more fun stuff from the 80s and 90s. Thank you again so much for letting me be your guide. Next week is Halloween, and you never know what kind of spooky treats are on the horizon. So until then, stay safe, keep studying, and wherever possible, let curiosity be your guide.